Hey Waves listeners, a quick note before we get to today's show. I know some of you might be looking for coverage of Wednesday's Supreme Court arguments in the abortion case Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization. This week's episode of The Waves had already been taped before that happened, but you should check out Saturday's Amicus podcast for an in-depth discussion of that case. And we'll have lots more coverage of reproductive rights in the future. If there's something you're particularly interested in hearing about, drop us a line at thewaves at slate.com. This is The Waves. This, this is, is the, the waves. waves. This is The Waves. This is The Waves. This is The Waves. Welcome to The Waves, Slate's podcast about gender, feminism, and playing devil's advocate in the Kamala Harris debate. Every episode, you get a new pair of feminists to talk about the thing we can't get off our minds. And today, you've got me, Noreen Malone, an editor-at-large for Slate. And me, Alicia Montgomery, executive producer of Slate Podcasts. I'm excited because this week we're talking about Kamala Harris's vice presidency. So a USA Today Suffolk poll in early November showed that she had an approval rating of just 28%, which for a little context is lower than even Dick Cheney's at his lowest, which is kind of crazy, right? She's only a year into this. There's been no Iraq war and she's lower than Dick Cheney. Harris hasn't actually been in the spotlight very much. That's the other crazy part about this. What is that all about? Is Harris getting thrown under the bus by the Biden administration? Is it the media's fault? Is it plain old racism and sexism? Is it her own fault? Does it have to do with the larger dynamics in the Democratic Party? A lot of questions and we will dig in. Alicia, I will admit that one reason I'm interested in this subject is I have always found Kamala Harris to be a lot more appealing than the average Democratic voter seems to, but I'm sort of exactly in her demographic, right? I'm a professional woman. I enjoy seeing ambition in other women. And also the other thing I like about her is that she's sort of a little mean and aggressive and kind of a cool girl. And people don't tend to like that in their politicians. So I will admit that's just a weird thing. So I'm in the minority and I want to figure out why. Well, you know, Noreen, I feel like for a long time, and especially in this particular moment, there seems to be a lot of sort of willful ignorance about what we already know about the American political landscape and where she's placed in it. This job, the vice presidency, is literally a job that almost no one wants The way people get this job is they got beat out by the person who is hiring them. And now they've got to spend four to eight years with this kind of settled soulmate relationship waiting for their turn at the top spot. And there's this idea that the bromance between Joe Biden and Barack Obama is kind of what you're aiming for in a president to veep relationship, but it has always been more of a frenemy situation. You look at, you know, the last president who credible reports suggest was okay with (laughs) Mike Pence getting killed in the Capitol because he wouldn't do anything to, to intervene in the election. And so if you're looking at that model, or you're looking at something sort of pre-Obama-Biden, you look at Dick Cheney, who, you know, was sort of a political mastermind and and kind of was running the country from his office while George W. Bush was out there uh, being affable. 
or, you know, you look back to sort of the the coldness that developed between Bill Clinton and Al Gore after Clinton squandered so much political capital by harassing a lot of women. It's just like this is not a dynamic that lends itself to the kind of buddy film that we all seem to be asking for here. Right. And you can't do a bromance with a man and a woman, right? Like, it's her it's her older male boss. Like, you just, that is actually who she, yeah, again, was in competition with. It's a weird relationship, right? The closest analog that I'm thinking about as you're talking is George W. Bush and Condi Rice, who had a super close relationship. But also, people whispered about them and said it was weird and, like, what was going on there, you know? So she is, like, in just in the interpersonal way, like, she she's in a bit of a bind. Lots to talk about. Let's start by diving in on what we actually think about how Vice President Harris has performed in office. But first, some business. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Thank you so much for listening. If you're loving The Waves and want to hear more, subscribe to our feed. New episodes come out every Thursday morning. And while you're there, check out our other episodes, too, like last week's about what to do with all your holiday leftovers and why, historically, women have been in charge of dealing with the remains of a meal. Alicia, what has the Harris vice presidency actually been like? What has she done so far? I was reading a story in um, The Grio, which is uh, a Black uh, online news site, and it was talking about how this narrative that um, Kamala Harris has been invisible is just a, a, a crock of hooey. She's done sort of the the appearances here, there, and everywhere. Um, she's had uh, more than 100 meetings with the president. She's been on the Hill. She's been overseas. She's been doing the job of a vice president, which, frankly, you know, if your vice president is more famous than you 10 months into your administration, then there is a problem. (laughs) Vice presidents don't get famous or not supposed to get particularly famous unless there's a crisis. But the one thing that I really want to focus on with her portfolio is the way that she's been used frankly, to sort of be the face of the border policy for the Biden administration. The border crisis, if that's what you want to call it, and immigration have been radioactive issues for years. On both sides of the aisle, there's a lot of really tricky politics around these. And Kamala Harris was one of many Democratic candidates who saw this as kind of a central moral question back in 2020. But the Biden administration is falling into sort of the same traps as so many White Houses and not being able to sort of clearly articulate what they are for uh, when it comes to immigration. And it's fine to say, I don't want to be as cruel as the Trump administration during the campaign, but during your presidency, you have to actually be for something. And the Biden administration has sort of been very 
awkwardly holding the line on border security and has actually used Kamala Harris as the voice of a policy discouraging people from coming to the uh, southern U.S. border to seek asylum. Here's a clip of a speech that Kamala Harris gave during a trip to Guatemala back in June talking about border security. I want to be clear to folks in this region who are thinking about making that dangerous trek to the United States-Mexico border. Do not come. Do not come. The United States will continue to enforce our laws and secure our border. There are legal methods by which migration can and should occur. But we, as one of our priorities, will discourage illegal migration. I don't think it was an accident that she was put in that position by this White House because She's blast protection. Um, She's a guarantee that a certain sector of the left won't be able to criticize the policy as racist. But it's almost like you put this prominent woman of color and prominent first-generation American up there, and you can say that, okay, our border security policy, see, it's not racist. See, this black woman, this Asian American woman, this daughter of immigrants is the person who's who's telling uh, Central Americans not to come here. This administration is already deep in disappointing territory for a lot of those voters of color who make up the Democratic base. And the fact that you make Kamala Harris the face of this policy, that's not going to help. Let me play actually devil's advocate for a minute, okay? So so why is that her job? Well, because it is her job, right? Like, the job of the vice president is sort of you eat this shit sandwich that they serve you, right? And, like, having border security be your job in 2021 is definitely a shit sandwich, right? The way you were talking about it was sort of saying, was sort of taking agency away from Kamala Harris and all of this. And theoretically, she's the captain here, right? So she should be the person figuring out how are we clearly going to communicate? I'm not saying that she, you know, is able to say whatever she wants, but if there is a muddled message, she's got something to do with that. There's a balance of power in this relationship traditionally. Um, of course, the top guy is looking for a way to hog the credit and deflect the blame and make somebody else do the hard work. But it's another matter entirely when you are sending the daughter of immigrants to tell immigrants not to show up. It's sort of notable what she hasn't been able to concentrate on, right? So she came in saying that voting rights was something that she wanted to talk about. And that just hasn't been part of the conversation. The Biden administration has been concentrating on the infrastructure bill, and Pete Buttigieg has really become the face of that. Why do you think that she's been unable to sort of get juice there? She came into the Senate the same time that Donald Trump came into the White House. She's not kind of a creature of the Senate. She's not a creature of political Washington in the same way that, you know, previous vice presidents have been. She came into the Senate at a very contentious time between the parties, and she was running for the White House two years later. 
So it's not like she's going to be able to step into the Senate the way Joe Biden was for Obama and knock heads together and figure out who is saying no and who's saying not yet. And so she has spoken out about voting rights. She has been present in a conversation about voting rights, but because it has not been, you know, topic number one in Washington politics, it hasn't gotten the kind of coverage that the wheeling and dealing over Build Back Better uh, has gotten. And she's not going to be able to sort of single-handedly move this needle, especially if everybody in the in Congress knows that it's not priority number one for the president she's serving. And, you know, there is also sort of an element here where where race and racism creeps in, which is that for a white politician and an old white guy like Joe Biden or Bernie Sanders, they're going to get a lot of credit for being crusaders for voting rights. But for a black politician to be sort of the face of a voting rights campaign, especially a vice president, there's going to be some a level of people dismissing it as self-interest, as special interest. So she's not going to get the same kind of points for being a crusader for for voting rights that her, you know, frankly, her boss or some of her rivals would get. Okay, all right. I'm just going to play devil's advocate this whole podcast. So you yourself just pointed out she doesn't have a ton of Washington experience. And something that I was thinking about listening to you talk is what is the job that she's supposed to be doing here, right? Is it best positioning herself to pick up the torch and be the leader of the Democratic Party going forward? I think that's part of the job that she's supposed to be doing. And that seems to be the part of the job that people think she's failing at. And the second part of the job is being the primary supporter of the president, being an appendage of him to get his stuff done. To what degree is she succeeding at the first one and the second one? They're a little bit related with each other, but they do seem to be two separate jobs that she's being uh, measured about whether she's able to do them well or not. You know, I, I know that you're playing devil's advocate, and and it seems it's very odd for me to be sort of the voice defending Kamala Harris because it's not that I don't like or appreciate Kamala Harris. It's just like she was never kind of an exciting political voice to me. And this is one of the paradoxes for women is that everybody wants you to get up on the soapbox and be the brave person and and be the one calling for compassion and and all of these values that are traditionally associated with women you know once you get the microphone but then the same people who or the people standing next to the folks who wanted you to do that will say that you're making yourself unserious, that you're not tough enough, that you're not going to be someone who a foreign leader or adversary is going to be able to take seriously. I mean, I feel like Kamala Harris is in roughly the same position as Hillary Clinton, where for a man in politics, being ambitious is taken for granted. Of course you're ambitious. For a woman, it's a slur. If her job is to absorb blows that would otherwise be coming for Joe Biden, then, hey, she's she's doing fine right there because it's very hard for Republicans. This was something that haunted them during um, the presidential campaign. You can't label Joe Biden a socialist. He's not scary. He's not radical. He's a slightly embarrassing uncle of, <laughs> that's who he is. 
You know, he's Mr. Compassion and he's, you know, competent and experienced. So all of the slurs that had worked when Barack Obama, frankly, another moderate, (laughs) all those slurs that worked when Obama uh, was at the top of the ticket didn't work against Joe Biden. The only way that those slurs could be effective is if they were lobbed at Kamala Harris, who's presumed to be a radical because she's a, a, a woman uh, because she's a woman of color and because she is a California Democrat. And that's well, the only in, reason this stuff sticks. Yeah. When, in fact, like her big rebellion in life seems to be becoming a relatively moderate progressive as opposed to her parents who were actually yeah. like academic Marxists. <laughs> um, but and and she, of course, you pointed this out. She has this double bind of being a woman, of being black and Indian, where all of her, the sort of natural aspects of her personality that, again, I find sort of appealing, the sort of, she's aggressive, she has a slightly, like, mean sense of humor, all of these things that I find appealing, other people find intimidating and play into ugly stereotypes about women and specifically Black women. There was this thing, let Joe be Joe, during the campaign, and no one saying, hey, let's let Kamala be Kamala, which I actually think is a little bit of a mistake. She can be quite charming on the world stage. She did great in France. She's she's actually got a charming personality. But she's in this place where, you know, whoever's working on her speeches, whoever's consulting with her, is sort of asking her to tamp back that part of her personality. And then the other thing that I see happening, and this is not me playing devil's advocate, although it's going to sound that way. I actually really do believe this. So, you know, you brought up this is exactly what happened to Hillary Clinton. And it's also a lot of what happened to Elizabeth Warren. And I think it's awful the way women in politics are treated. I think and I've spent years writing and thinking about it. And I've sort of come around to the side of, okay, if we actually want Kamala Harris to be ambitious, the move is not to go in the press and have your surrogates say, you're treating me just like Hillary. You're treating me just like Elizabeth Warren. This is so sexist, sexist, sexist. We can all say that among ourselves, but if she actually wants to do the thing, to be in charge, I think she can't play that card. She surrounded herself with a lot of Hillary Clinton people. I think a lot of Democrats in particular have PTSD about Hillary people. And I just think that like, even if it's not fair what's happening to her, no one sort of wants to listen to someone say, hey, it's not fair what's happening to me. And it's tough to watch something incredibly unfair happen to you. But maybe what she needs to do is figure out, okay, how do I do this a little bit differently than Hillary did it or than Elizabeth Warren did it? Like, how can I reshape myself a little bit? So I'm even if like I I see so clearly the way the Biden administration is sidelining me and I think it has something to do with my race and my gender. How can I reset a little bit? Democrats, if you talk about a curse of democratic politics, especially at the presidential level, is this whole idea that taking this, I'm not going to dignify that attack with a response stance is a working one. I mean, ask President John Kerry, ask President Michael Dukakis how well that works out. It just doesn't. And so it's like she either defends herself against these kinds of attacks and gets um, labeled strident and whiny, or she lets them stand and those people who are slamming her and slandering her in a lot of cases get to establish the, the narrative. It's it's a no-win situation for her. Yeah, I just think Kamala Harris has a lot more swagger than either John Kerry or Michael Dukakis. You know, I, I actually think a better analogy would be the way Barack Obama handled some of that stuff. He didn't let it slide when he 
you know, for instance, Donald Trump was claiming that Obama had been born elsewhere, right? I mean, he was a moderate and he sort of played that up and he was willing to appeal to non-college educated white voters. He was willing to, to sort of play that game in a way that Kamala Harris thus far hasn't necessarily. And I actually don't think her politics are all that more progressive than Obama's. Her politics are a little hard to pin down, actually. And she has has shown herself to be sort of a creature of which way the winds are blowing. And I'm someone who's sort of convinced by the, like, David Shore theory of politics that's happening in the Democratic Party right now. Oh, and no, I, dear. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know I came in, I came in, you know, I've, I've been away from the waves from a little while. I came back quoting David Shore. Um, but, but I, I actually do think that there's a real opportunity for her to sort of look and take stock. If you look at who Kamala Harris appealed to in the 2020 primary versus who Joe Biden appealed to, it's really striking because like older non-college educated black voters were more partisans of Joe Biden than they were of Kamala Harris, who, you know, would have been the first black woman nominee, right? Which is sort of striking. Like she has always sort of appealed to an elite. She certainly appeals to black and Indian voters on, you know, identity grounds and also certain policy grounds, but she does just resonate more with elite voters um, of all races, which I think is something that she could expand on, right? There's like a real opportunity for her to change herself a little bit politically. What do you think of that, Alicia? Well, I mean, I've got a lot to say about this, but this is a a good time for us to take a break so I can collect my thoughts about (laughs) about, uh, Kamala's appeal and and what her best move is going forward. All right. So we're going to take a little break here before I get to hear Alicia's answer on all of that. If you want to hear more from Alicia and me on another topic, check out our Waves Plus segment, Is This Feminist?, where today we are debating whether the new post-COVID move toward more casual office wear is feminist or not. If you're not a Slate Plus member, no problem. Learn more at slate.com slash thewavesplus. Also, The Waves has a very exciting reunion coming up. Do you have questions for the original host of The Waves? Email us at thewaves at slate.com. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. All right, Alicia, tell me all the ways that I'm wrong. Tell me if Kamala Harris needs a rebrand or not. Okay, 
There is this question around Kamala Harris and whether she appeals to working class black voters and whether she needs a rebrand. Why did Joe Biden beat her with black working class voters in, in South Carolina? And why do elites feel like, you know, why does that seem to be her base? And the answer is kind of it's not edifying. It's it's kind of unpleasant, which is that elites feel like they have the opportunity to vote for somebody who's going to lose. Make a statement with your vote. You know, those folks would or felt like they could choose someone like Kamala Harris. For black voters, especially when you're talking about the generation of black voters who came up during the civil rights movement, and frankly, you know, as a Gen Xer, me too, these are existential questions. I can't afford to spend my vote on somebody who can't win in the general when the person who the Democrat is running against is someone who, frankly, turns a blind eye when uh, a cop would shoot my kid dead in the street. For a lot of black voters, this idea that they're going into the polls and thinking that they have this wide range of choices. It's like you have a choice between the Democrat who can win the White House and someone who thinks that a big tent includes white supremacists and people who uh, see you as some kind of second-class citizen. But you don't think there's any way for Kamala to make herself into the person who those voters get to feel like, all right, that's a good horse to bet on right there. That's a good ticket to buy. No. Like, no. you don't think no, there's any like, way? Frankly, I mean, I, the political landscape has changed in some very dramatic ways in the last several years. So never say never. But, you know, those black voters in South Carolina and other early primary states across the country took the lesson from Hillary Clinton's loss in 2016. This was a woman who was far more qualified than the man on the other side of the aisle. She had unimpeachable, ha ha ha, credentials to, to get that job. And white voters said no. And so why would that same electorate that turned down Hillary Clinton, who on top of all of her qualifications and her political pedigree and her name and her fundraising ability and her international reputation, why would any black voter think that the same people who wouldn't elect Hillary would elect Kamala Harris? It's just there's not room for that kind of naivete uh, for black voters. I take your broader point about Black voters not feeling like they can throw away their vote. Now, that's super smart. But just this fatalism that just because Hillary couldn't do it means no one can do it. I mean, Hillary Clinton was a deeply flawed candidate in a bunch of ways that had to do with her own identity as someone who came up as, you know, the wife of Bill Clinton. And also had to do with the way that her campaign sort of looked to activists rather than thinking about swing voters and used all kinds of complicated language. Whether or not Kamala Harris is the person who breaks the cycle or not, whatever woman gets elected president has to sort of figure out a way to move beyond the way that Hillary Clinton and Elizabeth Warren were trying to do it, right? Like, Kamala Harris has her own drawbacks, but she has charms that Hillary Clinton didn't have. Her identity actually is a is an arrow in her quiver in some ways that, you know, that Hillary Clinton didn't have, right? If she can figure out a way to get Black voters to really be on her side in a way that they weren't in the 2020 primary. That's like a huge 
part of the Democratic base, a hugely important part of the Democratic base, right? These voters are smart. They know who is going to be able to get swing voters. They didn't see it in Kamala the first time. So what can she do, even if it's unappealing to someone like you or me, what can she do to like make herself more broadly appealing to those people who might not be white supremacists, but might be like a little racist, but also willing to vote for a black man or woman, right? How can she sort of appeal to this, these swing voters, these more moderate voters in the Democratic Party who, you know, we can scream about it all we want, but like the way the electoral map is and is going to continue to be to win the presidency, you have to get to those people. And I actually, I have a few things that I think she could do. Yeah. (laughs) I'm still curious what this list is. So one thing I think she can steal from Joe Biden, and she's actually not inclined toward jargon, but, you know, I think the way Hillary Clinton used jargon was kind of a problem in her campaign. And Kamala Harris could sort of steal from the Joe Biden book and just say, we're not doing that. We're going to sort of talk in plain ways to the American people. I think she could do that. She has a huge advantage over Pete Buttigieg or other people. It's her race to lose, basically, right? So she's got this big job. How can she best use the tools of, you know, the vice presidency and not end up like being like, you know, Selena Meyer, which is sort of sometimes when you read about the way Kamala Harris's vice presidency is going, I, you can't help but think of Veep. So she could hitch her wagon to some kind of issue that's really bugging all of the American people. So one thing I came up with was try to be the face of fixing the supply chain, right? Like maybe she can't do it, but she can like walk around, wear a bunch of hard hats at the ports and like try to be the Santa Claus getting everyone their Christmas gifts, right? Because actually I feel like you know, American capitalism is behind fixing the supply chain issues enough that eventually it will resolve herself itself and she could be the person who gets congratulated for it. She could also sort of take a page, this is the one I think you're going to hate, but she could take a page from the Eric Adams playbook, right? Eric Adams, by the way, endorsed Kamala Harris. And she could be the person, the Black person, talking about how the rise in crime is not great and how it's bad for cities. And like Eric Adams, she has the ability to do that and talk about it without it being a racist dog whistle, right? That she can sort of have a frank conversation and say, no, I'm not saying that, like, cities are cursed, horrible places. I'm just saying, like, the people in cities want them to be nicer, right? She could sort of do that, and it might, in a way, build on her background as a prosecutor better than what she's doing right now, which is sort of hiding it, right? Like, all of this work that she did in her career, she sort of hasn't been able to use because being a prosecutor is out of fashion in many corners of the Democratic Party right now. And then I think the last thing that she can do is she can take advantage of the opportunity she has to be on the world stage more, right? She was great in France, I thought. I mean, there were like weird, there were weird right-wing sort of like attacks on her, like pretending she'd faked a French accent, you know, saying she shouldn't have bought, you know, fancy cookware. (laughs) Right, like totally crazy stuff. But like, she's really charming and she could sort of put herself forward. I think there are all these things in the job that she's been given that she's either not wanting to do or she's not being given the opportunity to do by the Biden White House or the vice president's office is enough of a mess that they just haven't been able to effectively do it. But like, I think there are ways for her to tack a little bit to the center without doing anything that will make her feel too bad about herself. What do you think? No. <laughs> <laughs> That that's a hard no. That's a hard no. It's a hard no because it's like, you know, I, I feel that that line from Game of Thrones, oh you sweet summer child. Um <laughs> is that Democrats are always in this conversation about what to do for swing voters, how to get these folks into the Democratic Party. Last Democrat to win the white vote 
for the White House was Lyndon Johnson. Yeah, but they don't they don't need to win the white vote. They just need to win swing voters. Yeah. You know, here's the thing is that Barack Obama was a man. <laughs> and so yeah, sure. the sexists right. um, out there uh, might not have sort of the same problems with him. And Barack Obama, and this isn't talked about a lot because there's not a really clean, comfy way to discuss it. Barack Obama is half white. He was raised by white people. He has a lot of experience being the only black guy in uh, the room and putting people at ease. That was something that he was raised doing. He did it with his grandparents. It was, you know, threaded in his entire experience. And so this idea that, you know, a different black politician can just take a page from Barack Obama's playbook and walk in or forge this kind of um, magical moment that he had to get into the White House. It's just like, you know, you're trying to, to catch lightning in a bottle. You're trying to take the the sword from the stone again. It There's not a formula to get there. And for Kamala Harris, it's like, again, I'm, you know, I'm going to show my age here, but I remember Dukakis riding around in that the combat helmet in a tank. I'm going to put on a work shirt and be the <laughs> a man of the people. It's like if you think about what Barack Obama had in common with the Democrats who won is he came across as authentic. He didn't come across as something other than a really affable, fun, nerdy, professor politician guy. He wasn't out chopping wood or hunting or whatever. He came across as himself. Trump came across as himself. Bill Clinton came across as himself. George W. Bush came across as himself. If Kamala Harris puts on a hard hat, she's not going to convince people that she's somehow transformed <laughs> into, you know, working class Kamala. She's just going to turn off the people who like who she is right now. I'm not advocating for her to turn herself into working class Kamala. What I think what I'm actually trying to advocate for is for her to figure out what is actually appealing about her. So fixing the supply chain, like she's someone who likes to be in charge. So be in charge of something, like just own something, do it. It doesn't have to be supply chain. She doesn't have to wear the hard hats, but like just take on an issue that that is going to like make people happier in their everyday lives, right? Just in a very political way, like what is the thing that is going to make voters a little happy with you? And then talking about crime, well, she was a prosecutor and she was very good at it. And so, you know, figuring out a way to like not hide that part of her resume. Like I just, I think that all of these are things that aren't actually making her working class Kamala, but are just actually leaning into her own authentic self. I, I feel like she's actually been tamped down a little. But of course, all of this is filtered through the way the media has covered her, which we have to talk about before we run out of time. I will be naive one more time and give you one more way that she could borrow, you know, something from the men, which is that I think Kamala could be, could cultivate her relationship with the press better. She is, again, an enormously charming person. And she's someone who, the people who make up the media and who cover politics in Washington like me, might find her more appealing than than sort of a, a voter in, like, rural Ohio or whatever necessarily would. But she's just been sort of unwilling to play that game. And the result has been some pretty bad media coverage. Like, Alicia, we both read this CNN article that came out at the beginning of the month, about a week after those horrible poll numbers came out. Um, can you just quickly talk about that CNN article and what it revealed about her relationship with the press and the Biden White House and, and what is happening with the way the 
the media covers Kamala Harris. Well, this was one of those like faux think pieces. It's like, oh, is Kamala Harris in trouble? Is she failing? Is she never going to succeed? Brought to you by the same people who told you that Barack Obama would never win the White House, that he was in trouble in 2012, that Trump would never win, you know, a Republican primary, much less the White House, and who frankly pronounced Joe Biden politically dead after Kamala Harris got that jab in at him uh, in one of the early presidential debates. I mean, you and I are reading the bajillion uh, word article in CNN and finding all of those unnamed sources and kind of the spirit of Gossip Girl where it all feels like some kind of dispute that's happening in high school over who is supposed to go first and who is supposed to sit at the, the cool kids table. These things move the meter because we report on them as if there was a fact in there <laughs> that's worth sort of, um, you know, parsing out. Um, Kamala Harris is in trouble with the media because, frankly, after four years of having this fire hose of news and crisis and gaffes and threats, Joe Biden is fulfilling the part of his mandate to bore people to death. I mean, there was a time in American political life where we didn't know what the vice president was doing every day, where we didn't know what the president was doing every day because they were doing their jobs and not trying to create a show for us. So the reaction of the political media to take this space where we're being deprived of material and elevate the storyline put out by God knows whom with God knows what kind of agenda that Kamala Harris is some kind of huge liability. It's not one of the things that makes me proud as a journalist. And frankly, it's part of why, you know, few people trust us to tell them what's important because none of the stuff in that article was important. What I thought was interesting about that article, I agree with you that there were very few facts, but the the fact of it existing was interesting to me because it clearly... Much of it came, many of the sort of gossipy bits came from the Biden White House and from staffers there, which means that the relationship is on some level broken, that they think that Kamala is not running her shop correctly. The fact that the gossip exists is interesting. And I think, but like you're saying, right, how many people are reading the CNN article, more people are watching the Fox News coverage, or even just looking at, you know, the photos that photo editors choose of her, which are often unflattering or show her looking crazy, you know? So I think that there are all kinds of ways that the media coverage affects what people think of Kamala Harris. Before we head out, we want to give some recommendations. Alicia, what are you loving right now? Well, I am loving HBO's signature series. I am glued to my screen on Sunday nights watching the Roy family mess up their lives and <laughs> try to ruin their their empire by by backstabbing each other on succession and then watching the hilarious and painful and emotional last season of Insecure. It's interesting that we're having this conversation about 
Kamala Harris, who kind of sits somewhere between these two worlds of having to make her way in, you know, uh, an arena where she doesn't know who her enemies are and she can't trust her friends, <laughs> um, which is not unlike the world that the women in succession have to navigate. And just kind of frank and funny and heartbreaking world of a professional Black woman, sometimes in her own community, in her own family, in her own relationships, and, and um, trying to manage that and build something that looks like a successful life and feels like a successful, happy life on, on Insecure. It's must-see TV for me. I am a season behind on Insecure, but I actually watch it almost as like candy. Like it's yeah. fun. It's like great clothes. Everyone's falling in and out of love. Like in addition to all the things you were saying, it's just fun to watch in the same way that Succession is fun to watch. Well, I am going to recommend Happy Hour by Marlo Granados. It was published by a small press in New York, so it didn't initially, I think, get a lot of attention and then has been like everywhere a little bit. Um, it is the story, it's a first novel by just an insanely charming writer, Marlo Granados. She tells the story of basically a party girl in New York City, and I think the year is 2013. And this girl comes to New York with no money. She's very beautiful. She and her friend sort of go around the city, you know, eating ramen for breakfast and then, you know, having people take them out to the most expensive dinners in Manhattan and they never pay for anything at night. And then during the day, they have no money. The, the narrator of it is very smart and she's sort of having a grand adventure. It's very modern, but it's also sort of old fashioned. The sex is alluded to, but never described and only barely alluded to, even though sex is sort of at the center of why she's appealing to a lot of people. Um, the writer has talked about how she grew up loving screwball movies and sort of the movies of the 1930s. And there's a little bit of that kind of sense of humor in it, along with just sort of the the great clothes that you see on screen in, in those screwball comedies of the 30s. So I just, I had the best time reading it. And I have not done much going out in New York City over the past couple of years. Uh, and so it was fun to sort of think about New York when it was like a little more alive for more people. That's our show this week. The Waves is produced by Shana Roth. Susan Matthews is our editorial director with June Thomas providing oversight and moral support. And if you like the show, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. And please consider supporting the show by joining Slate Plus. Members get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcast and bonus content of shows like this one. To learn more, go to slate.com slash thewavesplus. We'd also love to hear from you. Email us at thewaves at slate.com. The Waves will be back next week. Different hosts, different topic, but same time and place.